Welcome to Fifth Draw Wild, everybody. I'm your host, Matt, and joining me today is our special guest, Alan Sells. Hi, Alan. Thanks for joining us today. Hi. Thank you for having me. Alan, um, uh, I know you and I know each other a little bit on Twitter and from uh, some other things, but uh, for our listeners, why don't you uh, introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. Uh, My name is Alan Sells. Uh, I am the Game Master for Pokemon World Tour United, as well as a cast member on the Cool Kids Table, both of which are RPG podcasts. Uh, PWT United is all about the Pokemon Tabletop, a United role-playing system where we're kind of going on an adventure through Kanto, and Cool Kids Table is where we try a bunch of different RPGs and see what we like. Awesome. Well, I am super excited to have you on tonight. Um, Alan, uh, you know, we were talking about X-Men today. That's kind of the topic we're covering. How do you feel about that? X-Men is probably one of my favorite fictional properties. Um, it is for sure my favorite comic book, really comic book world, if you want to call it that. I mean, it's within the Marvel 616, but for the longest time it did stand kind of apart. Um, but yeah, uh, X-Men is, it's my home base in comic books is what I like to call it. Awesome. Okay. Um, well for, for any new listeners we might have kind of what we do here, our, our style is, uh, we bring on a guest, uh, they kind of provide the topic and we have them bring two or three examples of that up. We'll pull our, our audience listeners for some other ones and you know, where, where available, I'll, I'll chip in and provide an example. Uh, if it's something I know anything about, uh, this is. This is one of those times when I did not know a whole lot about it outside of the movies and some really kind of general fluff knowledge. I was about to say, so what's your history with the X-Men? You know, the the 90s cartoon is probably my my biggest connection with the X-Men. I love that cartoon so much. It's really good, and people that know the comics keep telling me that it's not a bad one, you know, all things considered. It's not. Um, the kind of nice thing about it, that was my gateway. Um, was the 90s cartoon. I grew up uh, in rural Alabama on a farm, so I didn't uh, have a lot of access to comics and things growing up, but I did have the X-Men 90s animated series. And what's fun is now that I'm older and have read the comics that the TV show pulled from, it was pretty spot on to a lot of the storylines. Obviously, they changed some things uh, to make them a little bit more palatable for a younger audience, uh, namely people who were supposed to die didn't, but, um, yeah. And the laser guns, right? They, they had laser yes, guns. Yes, and laser instead guns of... instead of actual guns, and no people were actually hurt. Anytime Wolverine used his claws on a bad guy, that bad guy was a robot. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so besides that, my only real solid connection is, uh, is seeing some of those characters pop up in some other Marvel ongoings that I've read a few times and watching the movies and then, you know, random Wikipedia and TV trope trolls that provide dubious information at best. Right. So why don't we dive in? Um, you've got three selections for us today and we've got uh, one from our audience and one that I've uh, picked out. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't we start in with uh, your first one? Sure. Um, so... When I when I started thinking about this and I really thought, you know, what what examples can I bring to the table that are really the culmination of X-Men? It is the soul of what the X-Men are about. Um, and answering that, I came up with three issues. Um, the first issue that we're going to talk about is Giant Sized X-Men number one. Uh, after that, uh, Uncanny X-Men number 197. And then after that, Astonishing X-Men number one. Giant-sized X-Men, number one, was the first real big shakeup 
uh, for the X-Men universe. It introduced um, a lot of really iconic X-Men and really changed the dynamic of the team into something a lot more diverse than it was previously. Yeah, I caught that when I read it. I love just kind of that dynamic of of having to build another team, kind of kind of yes. on a rescue mission. Absolutely. Uh, I think my favorite part, though, about Giant Sized X Men number one is aside from it introducing all of these iconic characters, the original X Men team was pretty kind of vanilla, and I really hate to say that because I love the original team, but. It was very much the gold or the silver age of comics. It was, you know, four guys and a girl. The guys had very similar personalities. Jean at the time was the girl, and that really was her personality. In Giant Size, though, you're introducing basically an African goddess. You're introducing a German monk. You're introducing a Russian farm boy. Like, you're just bringing in so much diversity and so many interesting points of view that it just completely changed the format and the layout of the book entirely. Oh yeah, and it's 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 a, a cast that's gone on to become, you know, kind of the definitive in a lot of ways now. Absolutely. Especially when you look at what X-Men kind of fights against, right? Mhm. Absolutely. Um when you start looking at, you know, a lot of people refer to it as the mutant metaphor of what what was it meant to be when they introduced the X-Men? You know, obviously, at the time, Giant Size X-Men uh, number one was published in 1975. And, you know, at the time, there were still a lot of race issues. There were still a lot of socio-issues in our culture that this book touched on in a way that was palatable for people to read and for people to identify with the minority group, um, which was pretty uh, revolutionary at the time. Uh, especially considering that, you know, Aurora Monroe, Storm, um, one of the most major African-American heroes in the Marvel Universe, got her start here. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it has gone on to really shape everything that ever came after it. Yeah, and, you know, like like I said, I have, you know, just kind of a, a passing knowledge of this. And, and the people that are introduced here, you know, uh, Storm, uh, Colossus... Nightcrawler, especially they're they're always the ones that I identified with as being as being you know kind of the mainstay of the X Men and you know especially that bad Canadian boy that they decided to toss in. For some oh, reason. that Wolverine guy! I have a love hate relationship with Wolverine. I really do. Um, my favorite X Men is Jean Grey. Um, I'm gonna just get that out the door. People who know me know that <laughs> I'm a very loud and proud Phoenix fanboy, um, but. That is also part of the reason why I'm not a big Wolverine fan. Um, I don't like the love triangle between her and Scott and Jean, uh, or her, Scott, and Wolverine. It just never fit right for me. But yeah, Wolverine, this is the first time he is an X-Man. And Wolverine eventually, you know, if you look at the cartoons, he got his own, Wolverine and the X-Men, where he was the leader of the team, which is almost out of character for Logan because he's such a, you know, I'm going to do my own thing and I'm a loner and, uh, you know, I'll have maybe one young ward and that's it to going to be the leader of a team. And in the comics now he's the headmaster of a school or well, he was before he died. Yeah. That's a, that's a pretty radical, radical shift in character that we're going to touch on a little bit later. That kind of plays into one of our other selections today. Yep. So, uh, uh, you're a bit of a Phoenix fanboy. Um, uh, why don't we, uh, 
take a look at that second choice there that you provided. That uh, feels on point. Sure, absolutely. Um, that one, I, I tried to pick three extremely pivotal moments in the history of X-Men. Giant Size brought in, it was called the ne- the New Genesis. It brought in the next figure of the team. X-Men 197, in some ways, was the end of an era. It was the end of the Dark Phoenix saga, and it was the death of Phoenix. Um, it was Jean sacrificing herself on the moon for the people that she loved. And at this point in time, you know, you hear the phrase all the time, the revolving door of death in comics. You know, when you die, you come back. When you die, you come back. But at the time that Uncanny 197 was published, it was unheard of to kill off not just a main member of the team, but arguably the most powerful member of the team and one of the founding members. So the Phoenix retcon wouldn't come later. So when this, until later, so when this was published, Phoenix was dead. That was the end. Um, and it was kind of a shocking revelation um, for that to happen. And the way that she died to me was also incredibly important. Um, there's a line at the end that um, it was something I almost became a god, but it was important that she died as a human. You know, she made the choice to sacrifice herself so that she wouldn't become something she's not, which I feel like is an extremely powerful, heroic message. Yeah, and, and it was a it was a showdown, right? Like something that had not been seen a whole lot in Marvel up to that point, wasn't yep. it? Like Absolutely. everyone coming to bear on this threat. Or this perceived threat? Well, and, you know, the, it, before the issue that we read, um, Jean had actually swallowed a star. So, essentially what happens is, Phoenix in a nutshell, is they are in space. They are crash landing back to Earth. She puts everybody in this shielded box. She pilots the, the, the craft back down to Earth. She comes out of the water in a brand new costume and full of fire and is calling herself Phoenix, that she is life incarnate. She slowly begins to lose control of these powers because they're so grand. Uh, she gets tricked by the Hellfire Club and gets manipulated. She turns into Dark Phoenix, fights the X-Men, nearly kills them. And what's important here is she flies off into space And she eats a sun. She eats a star and kills about five billion people in the process. And again, that's something that's never really been done in Marvel, where you had this, you know, very heroic figure not just go evil, but commit, you know, a truly horrific act of murdering billions of innocent life forms. And I think it was really interesting that Marvel actually said, okay, well, we're going to deal with the consequences of this. We're not just going to kind of sweep it under the rug. So big props to Chris Claremont for taking that step and making that choice. Yeah, and that's that's a thing that that again hadn't really happened. They had the they had the sitcom mentality, right? Everything gets wrapped up at the end of the issue and everything kind of resets to normal, right? Right. You know, prior to this. Mm-hmm. So this is this is a change that's kind of echoed in a lot of ways across the whole Marvel line. Yes. Absolutely. It's after Chris Claremont's run on the X-Men that you really start seeing characters get played with in new and different and interesting ways. Um, This is one of the first major examples of the villain twist of, you know, having a good hero go bad um, and not just go bad. And by the end of the issue, oops, it was just brainwashing him good again. But there was a full arc of not only did she go bad, she killed people. And not only did she kill people, she had to face the consequences of it. And not only did she face the consequences, she made the choice herself to say, no, I am taking control of my own destiny. I am taking agency. This is how this is going to be. 
I love you, Scott. I love my team. But ultimately, this is my choice. And that, again, at the time was pretty revolutionary. This is a woman making her own destiny and taking control of agency. One of my favorite things I've ever heard about Jean Grey is she is the one that balks at destiny. If you tell her something is ordained to be, she will fight against it because she writes her own story. And I think that's really admirable. That's that's a really really cool kind of characterization mm-hmm. that that they've got there. It's uh, it's kind of a shame that they've they've had to toy around with that character so much to to keep her relevant. Yeah, very true. Um, you know, currently she is back, but she is not her. It is Teen Jean. Adult Jean is still dead. A lot of people like to joke that you know, oh, that person has died as many times as Phoenix. And really, in main canon, Phoenix has only died twice. Phoenix dies once on the blue side of the moon, and then she dies again when Magneto gives her a stroke. Um, and she dies at the end of the new X-Men run, which actually leads into Astonishing. Um, she dies right before uh, the Astonishing X-Men run by Joss Whedon. Well, speaking of the Astonishing run, uh, I believe Absolutely. that was your uh, third choice. That so was nice my to... third choice. I debated on that one for a while because I was either going to do that one or I was going to do Jim Lee's X-Men number one, which is a lot of what a lot of people think of when they think of the X-Men. That's what the 90s animated series was based off of. But Joss Whedon's run on Astonishing revitalized X-Men in a way that it hadn't been seen since Chris Claremont. It brought back gravitas to the story. It brought back, you know, one of my favorite lines in the first issue. And the first issue, if you've not read it, listeners, go read it. There are so many good one-liners and zingers in there. Uh, it's phenomenal. But one of my favorites is Wolf- they're, they're all talking and Wolverine looks at Cyclops and says, this is about the tights, isn't it? And Scott says, Logan, superheroes wear costumes. Besides, all the black leather is making people nervous. So it's kind of the idea that it's embracing what it means to be a superhero, not just the, you know, 1990s, early aughts, black leather. And, you know, it was a call out to the X-Men franchise of movies at the time as well, with all the black leather and no spandex and no color. Yeah, and this book, especially this one this one issue that we read, um, it was X-Men. It was very clearly X-Men, but it was also so much Joss Whedon's voice to it, which which was just fantastic. One of my favorite Whedonisms in the whole thing is um, when Kitty phases through the wall and she sees, and she comes in to an auditorium full of people and Emma Frost is talking and Emma's like, oh, Kitty, wanting to make a grand entrance, I see. And Kitty's just like, oh yeah, sorry, I, I just, I, I'm running late because I remembered to put on all my clothes. Like, there's so many little zingers in there that are just, it just screams Whedon. But it's also very obviously these characters, that he researched these characters and he loved these characters enough that they feel like them, even though you can hear his voice. It's, it was a really delicate balance that he walked that I felt like he did very well. And and he just tied all the history in. You know, there was another moment when uh, when Logan got back to the school and he went in to talk to Scott and he found Scott and him in bed together and he just goes ballistic at him. What stage of grief is this? Denial? And then Emma's just watching them just battle on the front lawn and she just goes, the best body among money can buy amazing brains superpowers and i still can't compete with a corpse yep and i still rate below a corpse and it's it's such an interesting dynamic now i will be honest i am not a big fan of emma frost um and a lot of that you know yes i'm a gene gray guy you know scott and gene otp you know i love them a little bit of biased a little bit of bias but i love joss whedon's emma 
She is so interesting and layered, and you don't forget that this is the same character that when she was introduced back in the day in uh, New Mutants, that she literally set a girl's pony on fire. You never forget that this woman used to be a supervillain, but you also see the compassion that she has for these students, and it's such an interesting dynamic. It's very layered, and I really like it. Yeah, she pops up in in the next two that we're going to look at as well, and she definitely has just kind of become that mainstay now, Mm -hmm. that co-teacher with Scott, you know, in a lot of ways. And it really does. She's an amazing character, and it's just one of those people that is so easy to love to hate because she's not Jean. And why is she with Scott? How dare you? And you're not Professor Xavier just because you can read minds. But, man, she just has so much much more personality, it feels like, than comes across all the time. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, kind of, again, nice little segue into House of M. Emma plays a huge role in House of M., But it's very interesting to see her dynamic with Cyclops in that alternate reality never world. Oh yeah, let's 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 dig into House M a little bit, and then we'll 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 circle back around to Scott and Emma. Um, uh, House M was suggested by uh, Josh. Mm-hmm. Off of uh, off of Twitter, uh, yeah, one of your uh, one of my podcasting partners, uh, and he suggested this one. Um, we had we had several other suggestions uh, that were all really good ones. You know, several of them were ones that I think honestly deserve their own kind of their own space, which is why they weren't they weren't selected for this episode. Um, but yeah, let's dig into House AM. This is a uh, this is a turning point, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. What's interesting to me about House of M is that, so there is kind of a a conspiracy theory of sorts in the X-Men fandom right now in that Marvel is kind of downplaying the X-Men because Fox owns the movie rights. And so they don't want, you know, to feature this book that they don't have the rights to and they have the movies in theaters and all of that, which of course, if you look at it objectively, it's not true simply because, you know, they're still doing you know, events to tie into the movies, you know, they're doing all this stuff. House of M was seen as the first step in that direction of the downsizing, quote unquote, of the X line with three little words, no more mutants. Oh man, that, that moment was, you could feel that coming off the pages. Yeah. And every time I read that moment, I get chills. Brian Michael Bendis is just so good at what he does. Wanda is such a tragic character. She is one of those that started out just kind of as the girl, but eventually morphed into so much more. And to see her in this series, insane, straight up insane, and able to bend reality to her whim, it's frightening. And I think they come across, that feeling comes across very well, especially not only when she says no more mutants, but speaking of Emma, when she's running to Cerebro and the look on her face, just the abject horror, the artist and the way everything was framed, it was just absolutely wonderful. Oh yeah. And, and it starts off, you know, it, it starts off with just, a f- just enough mentions of previous events to clue you in as to why, why she's breaking in the, in that moment. And, you know, I, I feel a lot, I feel a lot of empathy for the characters in this just kind of across the board. Everyone in this book, every single person, um, maybe with one exception, is is just given this this impossible choice on every single page. You know, at the first one, it's Xavier, fix her or wipe her, keep her sedated or actually help her. And then, you know, it moves on and he's he presents the idea to the Avengers and to the other X-Men of save her or kill her. 
And that's that's literally the terms they're talking in there around Tony Stark's fancy table. And I just love seeing the emotion in some of the uh, ancillary characters that they pull in for this. Um, like Spider-Man just goes through this huge breakdown throughout this book. Spider-Man is such an interesting character in House of M. And what's interesting is on this reread, because I'd read this series before, but I had forgotten just how powerful the Spider-Man stuff is. You know, obviously I was concerned about, well, crap, there are no more mutants. Like, this is this is the beginning of the end of the X-Gene and of mutants. But poor Spider-Man. You know, he wakes up in a world where Gwen Stacy not only is alive, but they're married and have a child. And then to be revealed that, no, all of that was a lie, she's dead, and oh, by the way, it's because you failed to save her. It's like getting punched in the gut for a second time. It's just awful. There's there's this great line from an old Spider-Man book. Um, You know, when I was little, I would just kind of randomly buy comic books. Mm -hmm. Um, I had I had one issue of the clone of the clone saga, and I had like a random issue of a Battlestar Galactica comic book from way back. you know, just kind of bits and pieces of these storylines that I would just read and read and read, but I never really had the opportunity to get into it until later in life. But this one issue from the Clone Saga has this great line in it. It's when it's when Ben Riley is Spider-Man mm-hmm. at the time, and he and Peter Parker are both confronting this guy in this uh, cloning lab. And Peter says, "Ben," you know, he says his name out loud in the middle of a fight, and Ben just looks at him and goes, "Man, secret identity, dude!" And the bad guy picks him up. And it looks like he's about to, you know, bane, bat break Spidey over his knee. And just goes, you're Spider-Man, and that's reason enough for you to suffer. Yep. That's exactly what they do to him in this book. It's like, oh, you're Spidey? Poke, 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 poke. And, and to give a little more background on it for listeners that may not be familiar with House of M. So not only does he wake up in Gwen's life, they're married, and they have a child, but his identity is public so in house of m mutants are the ruling class they are the overlords and so if you are a mutant you have power socio power or socio-political power all sorts of stuff economic power and if you are a sape or a sapien then you are considered lower class you are hunted um you are treated poorly and so Spider-Man, technically being a mutant, sort of-ish, he is treated very, very well. People know that he's Spider-Man. People love him because he's Spider-Man. Carol Danvers is very similar in Miss Marvel, that, you know, people love her. She is, you know, America's most beloved superhero. But one of the, my favorite things about House of M is that Captain America doesn't exist. And so you see Steve Rogers... And he's just a hundred-year-old man. Yeah, like, he still got the super soldier serum, but he never fell in the ice. Yep. Right? Isn't that what it is? Yeah. And there's there's this line that they keep coming back to is that what Wanda did was give everyone, was to grant everyone their wish. Like, the one truest wish in their heart. And that's what she granted everyone. And that's kind of broadly aimed at Magneto. You know, his wish was for uh, mutant domination. And weirdly, like, peace. That there was that there was that echo of peace that he had there. He was even allied with Doom. And right, with... but it's peace through subjugation. So it's... Yeah, it's, it's Magneto's twisted version of peace. But it's weird that that was still kind of the underlying echo that, that influenced of charles on his life a little bit absolutely down at the bottom but but that that idea of giving everyone their wish is what kind of ends up uh ending it all because uh once again um marvel's golden boy wolverine comes to the rescue and he has to you know rally all the troops and he finds a, a convenient deus ex mutant 
who can uh, who's whose only power is to let people remember the real world. And we talked about Emma earlier. Emma's one of the first ones that they go to to kind of uh, wake her back up into reality. And uh, you know what's 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 her and Scott's deal in this one because it's a little bit different than when we last saw them. Very much so. In this, they live in Connecticut. They they're just in love. Like it, it, it's such a, a domestic scenario for the two of them. I, I, it is kind of implied that Emma is a counselor um, or a teacher of some kind. It, it, they never really go into much detail about what they do. But the thing that I think is very interesting is that Jean's nowhere to be seen, except she kind of is. And that was something very interesting to me. So apparently... Again, listeners, if you haven't read it, one of the things that kind of wakes Wolverine up, or when he wakes up, he's in bed with a very familiar red-headed, green-eyed woman that looks very much like Jean Grey, but it turns out to be uh, Mystique pretending to be Jean Grey. And Mystique and Wolverine are in love with each other, and they are in a relationship together, and they're both agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And that's kind of the clue. And it's very interesting to see Mystique in a heroic role, you know, that she is... Her and Toad both were agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And they were trying to bring in Wolverine because he had popped a stitch. So they were going to go and send him to Madam Web to get, uh, I guess, rebrainwashed? Yeah, something like that. It is it is a real weird situation they find themselves in there. Um, you know, Logan Logan decides, you know, he gets... Uh, what, what we find out later is his one true wish was to remember all of his life. And that's what wakes him up because it, was, it wasn't this fake life. It was all of his life. So he actually remembers everything. And so he just jumps off a helicarrier into New York just just jumps off yep and um, mystique has to rally these guys to go get him back and when they when they actually confront him it's very much like they're confronting someone who's kind of lost it due to ptsd is kind of the feel yep and they're treating him like oh well we need to go put you back in the asylum you know we need to fix you again because it they almost act like this has happened before but it's also interesting that mystique's team it was mystique it was toad it was rogue trying to think of who else was on that team there were a couple other folks but storm for example was a princess in kenya like she'd never come to america and never become a part of the x-men you know doom didn't have a scarred face he didn't have the mask Um, no and and he was the king of latveria again like like a proper regent and you know they have the wakandans are are involved in this alliance it's it's this weird mix with magneto kind of at the at the forefront and you know kind of when they rally the troops and they go to invade genosha to to go confront wanda it's it's dr strange that ends up finding her in that in a real real creepy scene that whole scene is just very twisted and dark and warped um so again for listeners that haven't read the house of m the way it works is dr strange finds wanda with two children who are her children except wanda's never had any children um so she has created these children with her reality warping powers and they wind up straight up obliterating hawkeye who happens upon them shoots their mother and they literally rip hawkeye apart piece by piece and it's done very stylized as tetris blocks that they just he just blows away in these very geometric shapes until he's no longer there it's real real messed up (laughs) 
and that's that's kind of the tipping point for for Wanda is watching her her little monster children do that because just prior to the start of House of M, Hawkeye was one of the people that she had killed in one of her kind of like insane rampages. Yep, she had killed Hawkeye, Vision, and somebody else. I don't remember who the third person she had killed was. And she was married to Vision at the time, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's there's a there's a there's a scene early on in kind of her uh, her unstableness of her having these twins and it's vision that's the father of it yep. and that's that's kind of the telling point there is you know Xavier rolls in it's just like oh would you stop in his very Xavier way but it was almost like he was talking to a child um the whole time just you know this isn't real just stop this isn't you know this isn't real come out of it but it was very almost condescending uh it, but again in a very Xavier way so and and there's one other person that I kind of want to touch on a little bit here um someone that we didn't really see much in the in the previous three that we covered but we are going to see again for a moment in this last one uh is Magneto yes and what's the state of that guy, you know, during House of M? You know, we meet him at the beginning, and he's he's a little bit broken over the state of his daughter. Um, Magneto, Magneto honestly has probably one of the most tragic stories in the Marvel Universe. You know, obviously he's a Holocaust survivor, um, so that really shaped his personality. He started out as just a straight-up villain to the X-Men. He kind of reformed, became sort of a kind of good guy. Eventually, he went on to be the headmaster of the Xavier School with the New Mutants. Then, you know, Doug Ramsey, Cypher, died. He blamed himself. He went back to villainy. So, by the time House of M rolls around, he's just this very, very, very gray character. You never really know where he stands moralistically, aside from mutants must be protected. And if that means killing people, and if that means subjugating people, then by God, that's what I'm going to do. But he's also very, very much like you don't don't use me as a figurehead. You know, yes. He says something like that to uh, to Pietro near the end. He's just like, this is not what I wanted. How dare you abuse my name for this mm-hmm. and my dream right before he tries to destroy him. Right. And again, uh, for the listeners that haven't read it, spoiler alert, um, everyone thinks that it is uh, Magneto that is behind all of this, that Magneto convinced Wanda uh, to do what she did but in fact it was pietro which makes sense that he you know wants to make sure that his sister doesn't die and in his mind you know hey what we can what what can we do you can fix this you know how to fix this it is within your power to change this and he is the one that basically causes m day to happen and that is how this event is referred to moving forward in the x-men continuity is the day that no more mutants happened is called m day well and and kind of as a result you know magneto blows a gasket and just rips apart a sentinel yep, and uses it to just smash uh, Pietro into the ground. And then it kind of resets around him. Um, everything kind of resets. And kind of the closing note, just the final nail in this depressing coffin is, you know, the heroes that were involved that were protected by uh, Emma and Dr. Strange there at the final fight, they all get to remember. Yep. So, you know, Wolverine gets that bonus of getting to remember every bit of his life that he had lost previously. Luke Cage remembers losing his wife for a little bit. And, you know, poor Peter remembers all of that trauma 
all over again. And then the X-Men wake up in a nightmare scenario where they go back to the Xavier School for the Gifted and they have children being like, am I being punished? I've lost my powers. Are my powers coming back? I need to... The, the part that really drove the nail was there is a thought bubble, or there are speech bubbles all over the place, but one of the speech bubbles is, I need to call my mommy. And that just is a gut punch because these children, you know, they have been trained to embrace their powers, embrace who they are, be proud of who they are, and now they're having that ripped away from them that thing that they've been taught to identify with that makes them special and unique is no longer there yeah and and they give us just enough in the school and we see we see scott is is trying to kind of ride herd over the students and there's a few others helping him but you know logan's just lost in himself at the moment and emma is kind of taking on the mantle of of Xavier mm-hmm. in that moment that you mentioned earlier when she runs down to Cerebro. And it's it's just a, kind of an awesome, awesome look at the three of them. Yes. And where where they really are as characters and that Logan is is so wrapped up in his past. And Scott is trying desperately to be a good headmaster for these students at this time. And Emma is really more concerned with the big picture of things. And that all kind of changes uh, going into our uh, our final selection for the night. Very much so. This is this is one that uh, that I picked out. Um, and this is this is a much newer one. Yes. A much, much newer story. It's the all-new X-Men. It's the second story arc that we're looking at called uh, Here to Stay. And uh, Alan, uh, do you want to give us a little bit of background on this one? Sure. So uh, kind of the previously on X-Men for this story is that Beast decides that in order to kind of rein back in Scott, because after the events of Avengers versus X-Men, Scott, you know, kills Xavier while he's possessed by the Phoenix Force. Everyone's like, well, you just murdered Xavier. You're an awful person. We're going to throw you in prison. Um, he breaks out of prison with the help of Magneto and Magic and Emma. But where we kind of pick up is that Beast has brought the original five X-Men. So he brought uh, Bobby, he brought Warren, he brought himself, he brought Gene, and he brought Scott from the 1960s into modern time. So the teenage versions of these heroes are all running around, which presents some problems. For example, Jean Grey is dead in this continuity, and young Jean finds that out. Um, in one of my favorite lines, and it's not in this series, it's actually in, in the first arc, but she talks to Older Beast and is like, Hank, how did I die? And his response is, which time? Oh, can you imagine what that would do to that girl? And there's a beautiful splash page of where she reads his mind and you get these, it's almost like a mosaic of all of the different moments of her life, of her death, of her resurrection, of Phoenix, of all of this so by the time that we join the heroes in the second arc, they're settling in to the new era, but at the same time, they're becoming much more acutely aware that they do not belong here, um, which I think is a, a very interesting road to take. That you have these, it's almost like purified versions of these characters, distilled, that's the word I want. It's like they are distilled versions of the characters. So you have teenage Scott, who is all idealism, all I am the good guy and I am going to do the good guy things you have bobby the i'm just going to be joking about everything because i'm too scared to face reality you have hank who is appalled by what his future self has done but is still trying to hold the team together warren who god poor warren just uh he just feels so lost during all of this yes i i 
I think he has one of the most interesting like through lines on this this particular arc that we'll get to here in a second. But oh man, that poor kid. And then of course you have Gene, who um, you know in the fandom sometimes Gene is referred to as Saint Gene. So you have this teenage version of Gene Gray coming forward into the future, where not only has she died, but all of these people know her and they have expectations of her that she's not that person yet, and there's no telling if she's ever going to be that person so you have this poor girl with the expectations of so many people on her because her older self is dead and now she's here and they assume that she will be the same person but she's not no not even a little bit and and let's let's kind of let's kind of look at these guys a little bit kind of you know hank younger hank doesn't get a whole lot of attention in this in this story um neither does bobby so much outside of a few like training scenarios where yeah, uh, Kitty Pride is is busting him down a few pegs, really <laughs> in just classic Kitty form. It's it's fantastic. But the three that they really focus on are Gene, Scott, and uh, Warren. So let's kind of look at their their three through lines, and let's start with uh, with with uh, with Warren. Um, so Warren is Warren Worthington the third, codenamed Angel, uh, comes forward into the future and at first can't find himself. In the first uh, arc, the other Angel does not appear. The older current Angel does not appear but he appears to warn in this issue and it seems like he didn't even know what was going on right the 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 kind of sad thing about old angel or current angel is that he doesn't he's no longer warren worthington the third he is angel and he actually believes that he is an angel that he doesn't think he's a human he doesn't think he's a mutant he thinks he's an angel well i mean and this is a character that went through several different flavors of hell yes and one of them quite literal yeah and you know dealt with apocalypse and all of that all that nonsense and this is just kind of how he's broken and how he's surviving now right is this new identity yes and part of it 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 gets a little even more complex than that in that there's a time in the storyline leading up to this where you know he thinks he's an angel he sees a child who's grieving over a dog um like the child had lost the dog and warren's like oh don't worry i can resurrect your dog i can make your dog better and so he does some mojo and nothing happens the child is extremely disappointed and he flies away but the issue closes with the dog's paw clawing out of the earth like at some point angel got healing resurrection powers that he'd never had before and to my knowledge they haven't really done much with that which you'd think they would because that's kind of a big shocker moment of oh my god he did that they kind of pointed to that a little bit in this you know younger warren's like wait when did you get healing powers and then the avengers interrupt yep before there can be an answer and it's like okay come on guys it's interesting because when they meet up all current warren wants to do is fly together he wants to fly together he wants to embrace the sky and he doesn't seem to really care about where young warren came from why he's there he just wants to fly and then they accidentally sort of get into a fight with hydra which leads to one of my favorite things uh, in the whole thing because uh, Hydra's attacking Avengers Tower, the angels go and intercept, and Captain America and the Avengers show up, and Captain America's like, why are there two of you? You'd think in his life that this would just be like, oh, there's two of you for some reason. Okay. But it leads to one of my favorite things of the Avengers coming onto the lawn, 
And instead of hearing the conversation between current Beast and Cap, current Iceman and Kitty overdub the conversation with what they think they're saying. Oh, and it's so perfect. And it's, it's exactly... so perfect and funny and exactly on the mark. Because they're both being exactly the characters they're overdubbing. Yep. I think, what is it, uh... Iceman is being Cap, I think it is. I think and he's so, yeah. Just, he's just got, you can almost hear him in like an, almost like an army drill sergeant voice. Mm-hmm. It's just so great. And and that whole conversation ends with, with this great little nod of understanding between the two of them, where Cap and Beast are just like, you know, Cap looks and Beast and just goes, hey, I just, just keep me in the loop, do the best you can. And Beast is like, that's all I can do. And Cap's like, I know, I know you can. And it's just this great, like, like whatever whatever other conflict there is between the Avengers and the X-Men, Cap always knows who the good guys are, it feels like. Right. This version of Cap, yes. Um, don't get me started on AVX. Um, <laughs> I, I, I hate, I hate that, that series with a burning passion because it takes two of the most reasonable characters in Marvel and tries to make them fight. And it just does not work for me because cap is such a reasonable character and in this he's like okay hank you know what you're doing you've obviously know what's going on just let me know you know and that is very reasonable it's it's definitely like a hey don't screw it up yeah don't screw it up we're here to help if you need to don't make us have to come back exactly the the underlying tone there so so let's uh let's let's move back a little bit um because this uh, this kind of ties into Warren's story a little bit as well. Um, let's look at Jean. We'll we'll close with Scott, but let's look at Jean in this episode in this issue because uh, she is uh, she is a different creature right out of the box. Oh, poor Jean. She very much so is. Basically, her telepathy blossomed where it didn't in the past. She actually didn't get telepathy until much, much later um, than when they pulled her out. But because she had been pulled out of time and all of this, her powers kind of accelerated. So she didn't know what to do with her telepathy. You know, we open with a sequence of her where she sees scott and magneto telling her that she needs to run because they're going to kill her and the wolverine comes through and stabs her in the neck and we see the phoenix raptor in her eye kind of flare up as she's telekinetically destroyed the room around her basically she is this bundle of power with no training she does not have the psychic blocks that xavier originally put on her because she was taken away before those psychic blocks were put in place and more more on that even is that it seems like she did not get any training whatsoever yeah and that kind of the feeling is that her telepathy like you mentioned came in basically yesterday she just has to be constantly coached in like the proper etiquette for a mind reader for a telepath and everything's like you don't just go digging in people's heads you don't go messing with people yeah and she learns all these because she does that just all the time there is a really neat scene that when i first read it i hated it but now upon rereading it and kind of understanding better that this is not my gene i kind of love it she there's one point where warren is freaking out he's crying he's screaming he's trying to turn back on the time cube so that they can go back home and then all of a sudden his face goes slack and he's just like hey guys who's hungry i'm super hungry and gene is just kind of silhouetted in the doorway and is like well we voted and we said we were gonna say so i made him not think about it anymore but my favorite line of the whole issue is her walking away and her saying i can read your minds there's no reason to be scared i'm in control and the way they frame that that line is that last bit gets its own speech bubble. 
Yep. Which is just... And her face is darkened. You cannot see her face. And it's just, she has a lot of power that she does not know what to do with. And she's a scared kid. And it's a really interesting version of Jean Grey because you're now getting all of this power with no training, no idea what to do with it. And then the fear that she's eventually going to go on to murder billions of people. You know, she's aware of what the Phoenix is. She knows. And that terrifies her as well it should yeah and they just continue to throw these bits of you know their current selves lives at them oh my god the wedding invitation yeah scott hands her a copy of the wedding invitation he got that we'll get to here in a second and you can just see like another part of her life just crumble in her eyes so that is actually my favorite issue of x-men ever is the scott and gene wedding issue because you know these these two people who have known each other for so long and been kind of on again off again are finally coming together are finally at a point in their lives where they can love each other and be there for each other only to have that thrown in the younger version's face when at this point they're not in love like they're not together they're not anything aside from friends and teammates and now scott's just like obt dub we get married oh and and kind of the the worst part of that is because she knows her current self's fate she knows how that story ends. Yes. And that's not a good ending to that story. And she knows that there is no happy ending for her. Um, and I mean, from that perspective, that's a horror story. You know, to wake up and realize that your story does not have a happy ending. And in fact, your story has quite a dark ending. And yes, there are highs and there are lows, but ultimately you go bad in the worst way possible and you murder people you love. It's just... And and even even hope for children for them is, is kind of robbed away because it's always the children we meet of theirs are always other dimensions or other futures or yep. split lines and all this stuff. And it's it's just just a nightmare that this kid has been thrust into. And you can see that on her face when she processes the invitation. Yep. And Cyclops doesn't even stay. He just walks away. He hands it to her and he walks away. Um, and that kind of brings us into young Scott. Oh, that kid. Oh, that kid. And the thing is, Scott is one of my favorite X-Men. Gene is my favorite, but I, I always connected with Scott as a kid because Scott is the Boy Scout. Scott is the, I'm going to do good because it is the right thing to do. And that spoke to me as a young man and to see this version of him that basically he's come into this timeline and is immediately told oh by the way there's going to be a mutant genocide and only you can stop it by talking to you so you have to go and talk to you because you went crazy that's a lot of pressure for like a 16 year old kid that you are you have to stop the genocide of an entire race of people because your future self has gone bananas one can you imagine like all the stuff thrust on him there Mm -hmm. especially a little bit later down in the issue when uh, scott actually shows up when when older scott shows up i i get chills when i read that line it's (sighs) it's and, and, and by that point, you know, young Scott knows that for whatever reason, uh, his older self murdered Xavier and he has to deal with that. And he has to like confront himself in this in this uniform that is so, you know, predominantly black and just nightmarish looking mm-hmm. with with, you know, Magneto over one shoulder and this this lady with this gigantic sword over another and just looking at this uh, militant person that he's going to become standing next to magneto 
Oh, yeah. And it's just even even in Magneto's all like pristine white outfit that he's in now. Which is a good outfit. I'll say that's a cool costume. All all the costume work was real on point in in all of this. But Mm -hmm. but man, like that that imagery where he just comes out of nowhere like this raging villain almost just showing up and demanding things. Yep. Oh, you know, we are starting our own school, which is an implication of the one that you're at is not good enough. We are going to teach you how to protect yourselves, an implication of where you are isn't and that you can't trust them to. It's just there's so many layers into everything Scott says. And I will be completely honest with you. I hate villain Scott. I hate it. Because it is so anathema to what the character stood for pre-AVX that it just, it blows my mind. But one thing that I do admire about this particular setup for him, you can understand where he's coming from with everything he's saying. If you look through the history of the character and you look at what happened in AVX, you understand when he says, do you really think I would kill Xavier, the man who raised me, the man who pulled me out of the gutter and taught me everything I know? You believe him. And that is a good villain that you can look at and go, oh, you might have a point. Oh, and just that tragedy of Scott is kind of compounded by seeing Magneto standing there with him. And you're like, you know, there's some dark echoes here. Yep. Because Magneto and Xavier are best friends. And they went to blows, you know, God knows how many times. But man, just that one, just that one action just swerved his life around. Yep. And this kid has to deal with it. You kind of understand why he goes a bit bananas and, you know, runs off for a while and makes Wolverine chase him. Yep. Steals the bike and goes and, oh, Mystique is so, ugh, she's so evil and wonderful. Mystique in this is so perfectly Mystique. Like, I, I, I love what they did with her in this arc where she was just like, you know what? I don't care anymore. I used to care a lot about mutants. You know what? Screw them. I'm going to go do my own thing because I'm the only one I can count on. Well, and her line there is, you know, Charles is dead and his dream died with him. And I'm free of that now. And, and yeah. what's so, what the saddest part of that to me is Scott was supposed to be the bearer of the dream. He was the one that should Xavier die, he's the one that's supposed to continue the dream and to make sure that the dream propagates and that there is peace between mutants and humans. And now you have him saying, oh no, that can't be. We have to teach you to defend yourself because humans can't be trusted. You know, you, you see even kind of another side of that when wolverine is talking to young scott yep and he just vents just vents at that kid and it's like i'm the guy that xavier promoted over you before you murdered him is throwing down in the street there in salem and they're just you know you get to see the pain that wolverine doesn't get to show anywhere else it feels like yep because he has to be the strong one especially, you know, now that he's the headmaster of the school. And also, I want to point out, it's got to be weird for poor young Jean, because the name of the school is the Jean Grey School. Like, it's the Jean Grey School of Gifted or of gifted Youngsters or whatever. It's named after you. Ugh. And it's interesting to watch Jean's arc through um, all new X-Men, because later uh, you meet some X-Men from the future, where she is pretending to be Zorn, and like, it's just, it gets... It gets really cool. But we also get Ice Wizard, which is like the coolest thing ever because he's literally an, like he has a giant beard and it's Iceman, but he's a wizard and it's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. The th- I feel like all the stuff I chose is fairly heavy, but X-Men can get real bonkers, y'all. 
like real bonkers. Also, did you notice in the all new X-Men thing, the school is on Krakoa, which is the island that they fought in Giant Size X-Men number one. Yeah, yeah, I did. It was great. It was a it was a great little uh, great little callback to that. So like, yeah, we're going to we're, we're going to build a lot of bridges here. Yep. But another another thing that hit me where I live is the friendship between Storm and Jean because they're sisters. You see that in Uncanny 97, 197 when Storm is like, you know, she is my sister. Yes, she has done something wrong, but I will fight for her until the death because I love her. You flash forward to all new X-Men and you put in, get in Aurora's shoes. This is the person, this is your sister and she doesn't know who you are. She has never met you. And that's just... Oh, that just hurts my heart so much. Just, uh I have lots of Gene Aurora friend feelings. Like, lots of them. You can see how hard it is kind of for Aurora to be there. Like, she's willing to. For the for the memory of Gene, she's willing to be there for Gene again. But, but you only really see her that one time mm-hmm. in a big way. And you kind of get the feeling that she's just stepping back a little bit. That, uh, that of everyone involved in this whole mess, she's the only one who's like, I'm going to let these kids be kids a little bit. I'm going to take this step back. And it's interesting to see Kitty in the role of Professor K, where she is the new Xavier to these kids, almost. And it's such an interesting dynamic. She gets so frustrated at these kids for doing all the same crap she She did. And it's great. Yeah. No, this is, this is, uh, it's an interesting road that they're paving for the X-Men here. So, kind of wrapping up here, um, besides these five, and you mentioned the, uh, the Scott and Jean wedding episode, um, Mm -hmm. What other kind of standouts would you recommend for our for our listeners to go check out if they uh, want to kind of dig into some X-Men? Sure. I would highly recommend the Grant Morrison new X-Men run. It is pretty phenomenal. It takes place after the Jim Lee run, um, which was kind of what everyone knows as the 90s X-Men, uh, where you had like Team uh, Blue and Team Gold. I would highly recommend that. I would really recommend the first run of Wolverine in the X-Men. Um, it was very, very good. And then, you know, some of the classic stories, the Brood Saga uh, is a really, really good uh, story. One of my favorite crazy stories is uh, the original Extreme X-Men. It is a Dazzler story where she dimension hops. Uh, and it gets really, really interesting. She meets a Cyclops from the Civil War. You have a Wolverine who is, like, in a relationship with Hercules. Like, it's all sorts of different stuff. It's really bananas, but it's super good. So those are some really good touch points. Well, Awesome. And Alan, thank you again for for coming on today. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I hope you had a good time with these uh, these books here as well. I did. Well, um, where can people find you out there in the wide internet? Sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Alan Sells. Um, you can also follow our podcast, uh, Pokemon World Tour, at PWT Podcast. Um, we use the hashtag PWTUnited for the Pokemon World 2 United podcast, so be sure to check us out there. And y'all just spun that off into its own uh, into its own feed, right? We did, we did, um, and we're very, very excited about that, so if you're interested in the RPG, please definitely check that out again. It's Pokemon World Tour United. Awesome. Well, and you can find uh, me at Matt Hoadley on Twitter, and you can find this show at FifthDraw on Twitter and at our website, FifthDraw.com. Uh, we're going to have the episodes there, and we're going to hopefully get this up uh, every week here uh, here on out. So, uh, see you all next week. Uh-huh.